that was our, that was the entire uh, basis of our leaving the Episcopal Church. We we I never thought we were leaving the church. No, I thought exactly. we were leaving we were leaving a, an organization that had ceased to be part of the true vine. Welcome to the Stand Firm Podcast. I'm Nick Lannon of Grace Anglican Church in Louisville, Kentucky, and I am here today with Matt Kennedy of the Anglican Church of the Good Shepherd in Binghamton, New York, and J.D. Koch of St. Luke's Anglican Church in Hilton Head, South Carolina. How are you guys today? Great. Yeah, doing really well, Nick. Thanks. So, J.D., it was just as we were about to start recording last week, like the moment before that you got a text saying that your church, (laughs) St. Luke's, had won its appeal and will be keeping its property. Have you learned anything more about that? Yeah, it was. um, I don't think I sounded distracted last week, but if I did, it was because I was um, trying to confirm what has now been confirmed, which is, uh, yeah, we have heard back from the South Carolina uh, Supreme Court. And our appeal for rehearing was reheard, and they reversed their decision, at least with respect to our church. And so uh, it's sort of technical as to how it came down, but suffice it to say, um, we are free and clear. Now, you know, many of us who have been in this position or have lived under this specter for for years, in, in my case, decades for others, um, I won't be... Uh, I'm still waiting, you know, I'm waiting. It's, I don't know how long the, you know, it's like till the scans come back clear. I will, I believe it, but, um, David Booth but, beers rise from the grave. That's exactly right. <laughs> um, but I, um, but it seems to be, um, final now, of course, there's always, you can all, you can always appeal and things, but there doesn't seem to be any energy interest or belief that that will happen on any side. So, it's really quite remarkable. I was telling people, you know, I, since, since I got involved, I mean, I got ordained, I mean, I got confirmed in the Episcopal church the year Gene Robinson was elected. So that was almost 20 years ago now. And so it's been 20 years where I've had a, an antagonistic relationship with the, with the church to which I've been called, you know, and as I was telling Nick before, I said, I, I have been in every church, even in the ACNA church, I've been, uh, I felt like either the church was going to be taken away from me, or I was going to be kicked out of the church, you know, something along the line. <laughs> and now I, I don't really know, this is a new feeling. It's an absolutely new feeling. I mean, when you, it, and, it's and like I'm, one of those, like, if you could do anything, what would you do? Well, yeah, I mean, it's I liken it to what it must be like, and I don't know this for a fact, but I can liken it to coming out of a long illness. You know, it's like I, I, using muscles and and walking and and moving in ways that you you sort of thought you used to, but but you had forgotten um, over time. And you know, even like the defensiveness around my my heart. I mean, I was talking to the bishop actually earlier today and saying, you know, I'm in a position where the I don't have an antagonistic bishop. I have a church, the bones of which, at the very least, I, I fully support. I have colleagues that I respect. I have a, a building that's not under threat of lawsuit or being taken away. Like, I, I don't really know how to process it. And of course, the bishop, uh, Chip, is like, well, would you like an antagonistic bishop? <laughs> I, was like, I was like, I don't know. Maybe that's part of my process. You know, I don't know. Maybe I, maybe I would be totally ineffective as a, as a minister now that I have no, um, you know, it's like one of those old... Uh, uh, old warriors coming back trying to uh, learn how to play golf. And I'm like, actually, I'm a really good assassin. So maybe I'll go join the ELCA right, right away. I'll go. The, the um, St. George in retirement syndrome, right? That's right. Like, always looking for a new dragon to fight. But we are heartbroken, of course, uh, for Christchurch, Mount Pleasant. Actually, I'm going back this weekend. Um, the bishop will be there, Ted Duvall, the rector and uh, the former rectors and some of the former associates at can. 
are going to um, be part of what's being billed as a service of rejoicing and lament. And we're going to walk the people out, out the church. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's going to be powerful, but you know, the, the courage and conviction that they're showing and um, you know, the resoluteness in the face of, of this uh, seeming setback um, on the other side of this, it will only uh, be a beacon to um to their faithfulness and to their courage. You know, Matt, I mean, you're living proof in y'all's congregation of this, but, you know, there's something very clarifying uh, to not just yourself, but to successive generations about worshiping in a school cafeteria, you know, because of supposed uh, secondary issues to some. In that type of witness, you know, as a uh, the families with young children and the grandparents watching their children and their grandchildren um, walk out and stand for um, for the faith once for all delivered in this way is is going to have uh, reverberations, not just in that church, but through that whole community. I have no doubt. Um, and so, you know, now what is an Anglican? What's the ACNA? You know, what's the big deal is is much more a topic of conversation in, around some of these areas than it ever was before. And that's only to the good, because um, more and more people in light of the the increasing darkness surrounding us are going to be drawn to the light and it will be even brighter from a middle school gymnasium for a while than it ever uh, possibly ever even was at, at, in, in the historic building. So uh, is that where they're going? Them. Are they going to a gymnasium? Is that they are? They're going to an auditorium and a, a very local uh, middle school. Um, but because the judgment in their case uh, was was uh, certain, I mean, there's no there's no appeal. There's no. Um, any hope at all of coming back as an Anglican entity into those specific buildings, I believe they're already, um, they're already starting to search out what uh, a new, a new church uh, building, you know, property places. I mean, I'm not privy to the conversations anymore, but I, that's my understanding is that they are, um, you know, that the middle school will be a temporary provision, you know, that might look like a year or two, like in the case of the Falls church, but it's not, it'll be sooner than later they'll have erected a Christchurch Anglican Mount Pleasant. Um, we'll have a, a foot, a footprint again. And, um, and I trust and believe and expect in fact, that it will be um, stronger and more uh, courageous than ever on the other side of this. So pray for them. If you remember, uh, particularly this weekend. Yeah. Well, that actually is kind of a smooth transition to what we wanted to talk about today. Um, uh, the recent TAFCON Australasia conference, which I kept thinking was a typo, but is apparently what it was actually called. Uh, The formation of a new diocese was announced, the Diocese of the Southern Cross. And Bishop Richard Condy, which I think is how you say his name, in announcing the formation of the diocese, said that there was an emergency facing the Anglican Church of Australia. And that emergency was the existence of two gospels, one of which, of course, was no gospel at all. And in response, CAFCON Australia has been working towards not only reaching Australia through healthy, faithful, biblically Orthodox Anglican churches, but also promoting reform and repentance within the existing Anglican Church of Australia. But they felt ultimately the creation of a new diocese was a step toward those goals. Now, many of the revisionist Anglicans in Australia see this as a, quote, leaving of the family. This is language, of course, that we former Episcopalians are very familiar with. Aren't we supposed to be Catholic? The protest goes, shouldn't unity prevent schism? So guys, having experienced this ourselves and now seeing it happen in Australia and having just seen what happened at the Lambeth Conference, what does it mean to be a Catholic church, small C, what are the occasions for schism? 
before we begin, though, can we can we figure out whether or not Archbishop Foley has a like a body double uh, somewhere? Right. He's, he's everywhere. He, yeah, every time I see a picture, it's like a picture from. I mean, if, if there was a picture of like the Mars rover and he showed up, <laughs> I feel like there's a new there's a new Anglican province being inaugurated. <laughs> that man, God bless him and his travel and his jet lag. You must not know, but at any rate, sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt, but I just couldn't help but at least give a shout out to the the most highly traveled uh, archbishop in the in the world goodness but so sorry matt you were gonna you were about to I was, say I was something profound yeah. but i just had I, to say that <laughs> it, well, it was it was more it was not profound it was just remembering a, a far less than profound statement by bishop lee of virginia remember this that's uh, right he, oh, yeah. he said that um that if you had a choice between heresy and schism always pick heresy that's right because because the worst thing you possibly do is separate yourself from um from the church and that's assuming that a church that is embraced in full-blown heresy remains a church and that's that's where the that's the number of the whole argument i mean um i suppose if we want to go back and and think through some of the reformation debates and just kind of add in add in some context I mean, Rome to this day teaches that the church is present where there's a bishop in apostolic succession and and so the the the, the uh, idea of being separated from a church where there's a bishop and apostolic succession, oh, also and also who's submissive, submissive to the see of Peter, um, the being absent from that, you're not part of the church. You might be a separated brethren, but you're not part of the church. And the reformers always said, no, um, the the church is is constituted on the basis of the three marks of apostolic teaching, right celebration of sacraments and, and discipline. Um, and that's, that's been the, that's been the uh, reformed line reformation line um, ever since that's not, not Catholic though. I don't think even, I don't think if you go back and read the early fathers, the, 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 the teaching of the church leading up to uh, well, at least maybe the late middle ages that anyone would have said that a, a heretic a, 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 a church that embraces heresy is still part of the church. Um, it's it actually heresy. Heresy breaks breaks you off from the historic historic church because while you might have uh, bishops in apostolic succession, you no longer have bishops who are teaching the apostolic doctrine. Right. And and that and that means you've you've left you left the faith. You're you're no longer part of it. So it's not that this is a new diocese and some new thing. It's it's this 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 diocese is part has has chosen to remain part of the church. Whereas the Australian church, insofar as it continues down this line, has has decided to depart from the church. That was our, that was the entire uh, basis of our leaving the Episcopal Church. We we I never thought we were leaving the church. No, I thought exactly. we were leaving we were leaving a, an organization that had ceased to be part of the true vine. Um, and, and for that reason, it's not schism. It's it's uni. It's 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 actually unity. That's right. To to leave a, a, a branch that's been, bro- been broken off. Yeah, I mean, in many ways, we're watching the same um, dynamic that actually took place at the time of the Reformation. Because if you remember, part of Luther's fight with uh, the Pope, which of course Henry VIII ran straight into, was uh, whether or not the Pope had authority over, in and of himself, over against the clear teaching of Scripture. You know, and this was um, one of the decisive fights with a guy named um, uh, Colonel Catagen. I think. Um, 
do we cardinal catagen cardinal catagen colonel 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 he's his 31 his 31 spices of, uh, of the uh in his uh in his thurible really uh you know locked under lock and gate to this day but there was a fight at one point uh cardinal catagen made the argument that um the Pope was so powerful that he could send a believing Christian to hell if he wanted to. That was just how powerful. And, and Luther said, you know, that's it. Like, have I said this story before? Have I told you this? I feel like I had this. It must have been like 50 episodes ago. It's vaguely familiar, but go ahead. Okay. At any rate. So that, among other things, was sort of the decisive break. You get this from Phil Carey in his um, wonderful class on Luther, and he goes into detail this. But that was what Phil Carey argues was the decisive break because it was when the the authority of the quote unquote church was so clearly at odds with the clear teaching of scripture. Then Luther said that now I have the confidence. Now the Pope is the Antichrist because no one could claim that authority and, and not be Christ himself. And so uh, that's when he had the confidence to burn the paper, papal bull and be excommunicated and all the things. And so what we're seeing today is a very similar manifestation in that the appeals to quote unquote Catholicity, which is just another way of saying that the authority of the church, um, when it is in direct violation of the scriptures and of the tradition, as it were, in, in our case. Well, now we're seeing people who are, who we're seeing the same train wreck or the same break uh, happening all across the world where people who are saying, well, you know, we may not agree on this or that or the other, but the unity of the church and its authority will, will, will trump or will triumph over the clear teaching of scripture. And there are people like us and like these Eurasian I'm Australasian diocese and um, down the line, not simply in the Anglican world, but through the Methodists, through the Lutherans, through um, even the Roman Catholics, for that matter, um, who are saying, uh, watching this divide, saying that you in your um, the, the, the sociology and the institution uh, of the church does not trump or is not um, over the clear teaching of Scripture. And that's that's the divide. And so everyone you know, tries to make it about something else. But, um, you know, St. Michael's here in Charleston had a teaching series and Al Zadik uh, did a wonderful job doing it. And one of the things that he kept, uh, he had started the whole class with, how do you explain this? And this was back in the the, the thick of it, you know, 2012 in Charleston, you're like, you're at a cocktail party. How do you explain what's happening? And he says, well, you just have to remember this statement over and under that we are a church that is under scripture. And uh, there are churches who think they are over scripture. And I thought there was, it was succinct and it was, it was accurate. And I think um, a, a helpful tool. And what we are watching across the board is churches that are submitting themselves in, in dire cultural circumstances um, around the world to the authority of scripture, putting themselves under it, and churches that have long since either been uh, co-equal, if not superior to, and those are ceasing to be churches. Um, and, and we are uh, going to find fellowship across the, across the world with people we may never have ex expected to in different denominations and different practices when the dust settles and we... Um, and this this new reformation uh, that we see is uh, is finally realized. And so I think that I was excited to hear about the new diocese and have yet another reason, hopefully, to get down to Australia at some point uh, before before in heaven when we could just fly around it, you know, and uh, and sort of <laughs> transport. <laughs> when Jesus commissions Peter on the beach after the resurrection, and he says, "Feed my lambs," he means. Tell people what I told you. Teach them what I taught you. That's the food with which Peter is supposed to feed. And so the the apostolic witness is the teaching, not necessarily. Not nece I mean, we like to talk about 
Peter laid his hands on so-and-so after having Jesus laid his hands on him and on down the line. But Jesus said, feed my lambs. <laughs> Don't just lay your hands on somebody that you choose, but pass down the teaching and on and on. So the apostolicity is the teaching That's right. more than anything else. Yeah. I mean, I, I, um, I remember the, the question came up a lot in, you know, fighting with the Episcopal church. And one of the things that was so interesting was, was, was that you know, at least Rome, when they make the argument about apostolic succession, at least, uh, you know, they, they have a dogma and a doctrine that they're, that's that right. They're holding on to, and 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 in the Episcopal Church, there's really nothing. I mean, it's just there's nothing. It's 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 almost, it's almost like unity for unity's sake. It's it just just be just be part of the group. I mean, it doesn't matter where the group goes, it doesn't matter what the community says. Just be part of it. I mean, I know that. I mean, I know that Roman Catholic friends are having some issues with Francis and Pope Francis and other uh, liberalizing liberalizing trends in their own church, but. The Episcopal Church's claim, and I think probably the Australian Church's claim now, of Catholicity is 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 laughable. There's there's just nothing, there's just nothing apart from being together that actually marks them out as 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 being as being part of the church, as being part of a, a, a cohesive a cohesive tradition that could be called Catholic. Once once you once you decide to blaspheme marriage and and um, and and do violence to the gospel in that way you've you've you're, you've departed from uh you've departed from the church the i mean it is valuable i don't want i don't think we should say that apostolic succession is not a valuable thing I mean, we're, we're we're anglicans we recognize that our bishops do i, I believe we, historically we can trace our bishops consecrations all the way back to the apostles um the question is does that does that in itself lend any kind of uh does that in itself lend authority and I, to that question, I think we'd have to say it depends. You know, it depends. Right. So there, there's, there's a. I, I, I think that that's a very valuable thing to have. It testifies to the faithfulness of Christ to His Church that He's maintained the leadership that He's He's raised yeah. He's, He's He's raised up shepherds generation to generation to generation um, uh, to to lead the church. So it's a valuable and wonderful thing, testifying to the historicity and the faithfulness of God. But again, when when a shepherd decides to lead sheep into hell. Then, then the shepherd becomes a wolf, and the apostolic succession means absolutely nothing. It's a little bit like ancient Israel. You know, like, you read, I, was, I was in my personal devotions. I'm reading through Isaiah, and you know, Isaiah one is just you know the, the the problem in Israel in Isaiah's day wasn't that they weren't doing like the liturgies correctly. They, they, they were offering the right sacrifices. They were saying the right prayers. Uh, the Levites were the pray priests. They had their, all the forms were right. Um, it's just that they're also worshiping other gods, you know, <laughs> they're also, they're also, you know, they're, so when God, so God says, you lift up your hands to me and they're coated with blood. And so I'm not, you know, I don't care about your sacrifices. And, right. and the same thing is true with apostolic succession. It's, it's fine. So, but it's a form. And if the form is, has been gutted, like ours has, like theirs has in, anyway, um, then it doesn't matter. You the, the prayers are, are worthless. That's right. You can see the importance of the symbol, right? You can see why Polycarp could say it's important that, you know, you guys saw John lay his hands on me, which means that I sat under John's teaching. The one meant the other. Right. That's why that's why the symbol is important. Yeah, Irenaeus said this. I mean, Irenaeus makes, makes the first classical argument, I think, about this. He's, he's, he's arguing against the Gnostics. 
He's uh, he appeals first to the scripture to the scriptures, um, but then he also appeals to the fact that what he's teaching is what the bishops before him taught, all the way back to the apostles. And and that's not like you say it's not a separate argument. That's that's part. That's a that's a that's a, an appendix addendum to the argument from scripture. He's saying not only is is what I'm telling you from uh, from the Bible, but also uh, this is not just me, Irenaeus, saying this. This is what every bishop up until this time has said. Um, and people have, I think, wrongly taken that second part of the argument and made it into a, a whole separate argument so that Irenaeus is saying something about just having bishops in apostolic succession means you may necessarily have this kind of inerrant uh, or, or dogmatic authority. Yeah, I mean, and it just points to the tragedy of it all and kind of the sad cynicism, because, you know, on one hand, it's it's very compelling to to talk about the the church the way that some of these progressives talk about it. You know, we're we're a community of of sufferers, you know, we find unity and together we bear each other's burdens. I mean, who doesn't want this type of thing? Right. And so in in a certain sense, you can see the appeal. You know, we don't want to break apart. We want to walk, you know, walk together despite our differences and 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 so forth the problem there when it's from a bishop and then and then a rector position is that there's such a a a loss of hope in redemption you know because they they want to downplay the sort of exclusionary seemingly exclusionary aspects of calling sin what it is you know actually bringing light to bear in the dark places uh, because that seems to create a veneer of unity but what it actually does it leaves people there in their sin and that and that's the the least pastoral thing you can do because what we do is we point it out so that it can be absolved and then you can be raised up not to perfection this side of heaven but you actually I mean, we believe that that um, you know addictions can be can be lessened if not if not removed. We believe that um, you know lies and hurts and bitterness can be can be forgiven and absolved. I mean, we believe that misguided desires can be changed and reversed. I mean, we've seen this. We we long for this and we yearn for it. And so that's the unity that is found in a church that actually submits to the authority of Scripture in all of its uh, counsel, namely n- not merely its diagnosis of the problem, but also um, the the hope for redemption. And so that's what that's what's so tragic for me in this because you know the pastor's heart that I I think a pastor should have is that when we see someone suffering and wounded, we don't want to perpetuate that. We don't want to to increase the burdens that you have, you know, the be a millstone around someone's neck. But the answer to that is not to just sit next to them while they are mired in their trespasses and sin and sort of put an arm around their shoulder. It's to actually um, give them something of the healing hope of God in Christ for sinners. And so, you know, if we hadn't experienced it ourselves, we couldn't give it to anyone else. But since we have and we long for it and yearn for it, even greater so in our lives, that's the passion and motivation. And that's where the unity is. You know, it doesn't matter how far one has gone from God, you know, it doesn't matter how far the prodigal, how far away land it actually is for him to still be in the, in the embracing, you know, the reach of Christ's forgiving embrace. But that does require a, a voice, you know, Jesus calling out in the wilderness, repent, you know, believe the gospel. Um, and this yeah. is, 
that's the that's the rub because if you the different churches one is sort of allow for they don't seem to have the the pathos the the sense of 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 pain that an actual life of of wanton unforgiven sin brings about um as opposed to these churches it still events something of the hope of redemption by the preaching of both law and gospel i'm reminded of that c.s lewis illustration where he talks about if the travel along the road is going in the wrong direction the most progressive man is the one who turns around soonest and if we're walking together on the road to perdition that's no that's no good for anybody and so it's actually the one who can put your arm around somebody and turn them back that is actually loving them yeah it was a bonhoeffer's analogy was you know, if you're running, no matter how fast you're running on a train, if it's going the wrong direction, you're still you're still in the wrong plane or something like this. So, you know, I think it's, I mean, we talk about this a lot, but of course we're somewhat defensive because it's always the people who quote unquote leave the church who are, or are accused of being divisive. You know, even reading some of these articles out of Australia, you know, it's like, we limit, we'll leave the door open. You know, we're the magnanimous ones. We're the ones who all we, all we wanted to do was deny the faith once for all delivered, uh, destroy the Bible, uh, reject the apostolic teaching and further confuse and already confused and lost an unbelieving generation, but they couldn't just abide by our, uh, disagreements. And so they took their toys and left. And that's always how it's spun. And of course, an unbelieving world, uh, you know, the sort of the, the people outside the church love to, that's the, the narrative they want to uh, continue to perpetuate because, um, you know, the church increasingly looks less and less uh, any different than, um, you know, the op-ed pages, the New York Times. I mean, those people are just waiting for, you know, our bishops to get their acts together, you know, be more like Francis and Francis is more like uh, the New York Times. And then the life will be better, you know? And so, so we're somewhat defensive about that, but it's it, again, and I keep, uh, this is just my refrain, but I I've seen it and we're about to welcome um, the new wineskin uh, people from all over the world uh, down to here. And we're going to see the actual unity of a Bible believing church, whether it's in Kenya or Ghana or Singapore or S- South America or wherever. And it is so deep and so powerful and so unifying and, and, and beautiful that um, no amount of being called a schismatic or mean or whatever else the uh you know breaking the family too hot-headed i mean what is one of the titles of one of these articles that we were sent i mean i think it was something like the fundamentalists um what, what is it was something pretty uh i thought it was a joke anglican schism colon how dare these fundamentalist defectors question our faith <laughs> i thought that was a joke i thought that was like babylon b and it was an actual article. And I was like, well, we dare, you know, uh, to question your faith because you have so um, made a mockery of anything that looks like the faith once for all delivered that it's it's actually it's actually um, quite polite to even call it something remotely Christian, what is being purported in many of these quote unquote churches at that, this point. That's, a, that's an important point because like the, these, the, when, it, when we're talking about theological liberalism, which is what's eaten up the Anglican communion and um, the Australian church, the American church. We are not talking about people who believe in something like hell, that they don't believe hell exists or they're, they're, it's not a serious consideration, except for maybe if you voted for Trump, but maybe they'll help it. Otherwise, <laughs> there's nothing There's nothing really that will land you to hell in hell. And so the whole question of what is salvation 
I mean, when you when you yeah. when you ask someone who has who has swallowed theological revisionism, theological liberalism, what that means, you're that means you know changing the world. That means you know clean air, so, clean water, it's something like self actualization. Yeah, yeah, so human flourishing. By yeah. which they mean you know you you can uh, you're whatever, you you are the most you you, you can right. be your authentic self as a firm. That's, that's <laughs> self. So you're not. <laughs> so we're not even talking in the, we're not even the same theological universe with these people. That's right. And, that's that, right. and, that, and that's, and that's the problem is it, is it for, for decades, we pretended that we have been and, and, and we've gone along to get along. And uh, I, I'm saying, I'm using we in, a, in the most widest, broadest sense, but right. yeah. JD points out a really rich irony, which is that if the word Catholicity means something like universality, at least in the Anglican context, the biblically orthodox church is much more catholic than the revisionist church that's right i mean you've got you've got the episcopal church in the us church of canada a couple churches in europe and there's a couple here and there but the multichromatic millions upon millions of anglican strong church is approaching universal there are biblically orthodox anglicans of right. every stripe every tribe every nation every language that's, that's right. where the catholicity really resides at least yeah. in anglicanism well it's in and also it's interesting you know i i have more gospel unity with a baptist who's Amen. orthodox yeah. and a, or no a Mormon person who's orthodox and a and a methodist and a lutheran who's orthodox and i do um, with the Australian bishop who's That's Anglican, right. because because we're we're talking about two very different religions, and, yeah. and we might differ on some secondary issues with my Lutheran friends, but when it comes to you know the gospel, we're 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 right there in the in the, in the essentials of the creed, we're right there. But That's but, right. Um, but with the, with theological liberalism, there's no there there. That's right. Yeah, I was listening to a lecture, a John Frame lecture, uh, a, a systematics or something a while back, but he was pointing this out too, is that the question has always been the bonds of Catholicity, you know, where, where are the actual breaking points of unity within a Christian uh, denomination? And that's, a, you know, kind of a systematic theological problem, you know, where, what, what's the, what, what are the, the, the limits to our, to our table fellowship, you know, and I was pointing that out to someone the other day, because they were um, lamenting, he's one of these people who, uh, you probably have some in your, your parish, uh, or in the orbit, who, um, a very Christian person, loves the Bible, loves the Lord, but is very suspicious of the church, you know, they talk very disparagingly about the church all the time, and so I'm always, I'm always doubly sure to wear a collar when I have meetings with these type people, you know, and talking call myself uh, to double check marks front and back. But I was, you know, he was lamenting as often as the case with some of these people about all of the disunity of the church, all the fracturedness, all the, you know, and how Jesus said we should be one and pointing to these denominational differences. And as I like to do, I pointed out to him, I said, well, you know, I, I understand what you're saying. There are a lot of different variations of Christianity, but in fact, there's an amazing unity among Bible-believing, gospel-centered Christians around the world that, that really does speak to that promise that Jesus said. And yes, there have been divisions and certainly times in church history where, you know, bloody conflict ensued. And of course, we don't, we, we don't need to defend that. But as it stands now, you know, people who have been baptized into uh, the Trinity, you know, brightly baptized, um, with very few exceptions, are welcome to for, participate in the life of the church of all sorts of shapes and sizes of churches and areas, languages all over the world in this deeper unity than our superficial denominational disunity would 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 seem to to events. 
And I was saying that just to your point, Matt, is that there are Baptists whose polity and life and as it were practice will look different than mine and Presbyterians and, and Orthodox and on down the line. But this revolution, this reformation is exposing where the actual unity lies and where the disunity comes from. And it is not from people like us who are saying that we stand with the, with the apostolic witness of the church down through the ages. It's with the people who are claiming that the, the new thing of the spirit is now um, the way we should walk. And it just happens to be contrary to the way that the church has been comporting herself for over 2000 years. And so, you know, I, again, I mean, we talk about this in a variety of ways, but it bears repeating because it continues to come up, but I am grateful. You know, I, I, it's made, it sounds, sounds silly to say, but this conflict has exposed all of these fault lines. And once the, again, the dust settles and once we're on the other side of this, the, the unified church of God that stands for his word and his design and his purpose and his ultimate, most importantly, his redemptive work through the defeat of sin and death on the cross is going to be um, stronger, more unified and more beautiful than, than I think we could have ever imagined. And so I, um, you know, again, back to the eschatology question, Matt, I mean, I think things, despite having to go through the cross are actually getting uh, better. And I'm looking forward to uh, to getting down to Australia uh, sooner than later to celebrate with our, our sister diocese, our, our province or whatever it is down there in Australasia. In um, Ashley Knoll and John Yates's book, sort of laying out the parameters of Reformation Anglicanism, I think it's called Reformation Anglicanism, a, vis <laughs> a vision for today's global communion. The last chapter has sort of a manifesto um, for the, the hallmarks of what makes up Reformation Anglicanism. And one of them is Reformation Anglicanism is Catholic. And that's the sort of Catholicity that we've been talking about over this show. And they note that it's not for nothing that the creeds are referred to as the Catholic creeds, i.e. universal. And um, we've talked on this show before about you know, what does it mean to assent to the creeds? Can you just say like, I believe in Jesus, la, 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 but nothing about what he actually said. <laughs> I mean, right. I've sat in rooms with Episcopal clergy who said to the bishop that they wish they didn't have to say the creed in church. <laughs> um, so I know that no the creed, creed, but Christ, no law, but love, you know no, creed, no, no creed at all in the Episcopal right. church. But so so even, even if we wanted to say something like the, the creedal church is a Catholic church, as long as we build out what it actually means to assent to the creed, that's great because that's that, that's that line where we can say, I do hold these things with you, whether or not we see eye to eye about baptism or covenants or whatever, we are, we are submitting ourselves to these words and, right. um, and that's that's where Catholicity actually lies. And that's why it's so great that something so basic, fundamental and obvious as our biological realities is, <laughs> or is is has been the presenting issue, because, you know, we were able to and I probably resemble this remark through um obfuscation, sleight of hand, and uh, in the, uh, you know, polysyllabic words, able to be confused, uh, confuse each other enough to sort of not really understand what was being clearly said or not said, and all these various 
meetings and conferences and reports and all the things. And finally, it came down to something as 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 obvious as, you know, it's a boy or it's a girl and whether or not that had any sort of uh, cosmic significance, frankly. And yeah. there is a decided yes or decided no. And that is going to be a, a question that if it hasn't been posed, dear listener to your to your rector or to your pastor, whatever you call them, then it should be now because it, it will be posed to each and every mm-hmm. person who's a Christian or claims to be a Christian. And then the dominoes will fall one way, one side or the other. There will be no middle ground because there's no- <laughs> Literally there's no, middle. no middle ground there. That's right. <laughs> that's, that's right. There's no, not halfway pregnant here. And I'm not a half, you know, not some sort of chimera, um, like a fawn or something like half man, half woman or whatever. I'm just in the middle of Chronicles of Narnia again. So I'm, I've got all of C.S. Lewis's. Um, I mean, I do wonder if, I do wonder if in 50 years from now, if Jesus hasn't come back yet, um, because he has to come back to fix things because we won't, the postmodal people are <laughs> wrong about that. But, but He's going to uh, come back to a key. <laughs> He will have a have a turnkey earth when he returns. Now. <laughs> so when Jesus comes back to, to fix things, well, I'm sorry. Before, if 50 years from now he hasn't come back to fix things, I, I do wonder like what people are going to see when they look back at this. I, I wonder if we're in the middle of of a great yeah, like a mass a great psychosis. Kind of, um, well, also a great cleansing of the church that we just don't yes. know, we don't Amen. see, you know, because we're in the middle of it. And, um, you know, like the great Aryan, I mean, how long did the Aryan controversy last? It lasted, it lasted, you know, for yeah, starting. Yeah. And it didn't, it didn't, even when the Nicene Creed was first articulated in 323, it didn't actually reach its final form until, three, until 380 something. So the, this is, this is a multi-decade thing that's going to, that's going to go on and go on and go on. But I think like with every false teaching, God uses these things. Amen. God uses these things to build up and love his church because we get we now have clear more clarity about the truth we're, we're getting, gaining more clarity about the truth and people are having to decide whether they're with christ or against christ whether they're with the gospel or against the gospel and they, i'm sure they wouldn't use the, they wouldn't articulate in those terms but future generations will be able to see that's exactly what's happening you're, right. quote, saying, you're, you're quoting jeremiah one right i have put my words in your mouth to pluck up and pull down to destroy right. and to overthrow and to build and to plant. That's right. And and to think that we would take something like that lightly or to sort of hold that righteously or, or pompously is just laughable. The way that it's often described, you know, oh, we're the, who may do the self, you know, the self-appointed guardians of truth or something like this. It's like, well, you know, step back a little bit. We are talking about scripture, tradition, and reason. You know, this is one of our threefold um, way of, of uh, theologizing in the Anglican church, at least. And we do not hold these truths to be self-evident. You know, we hold them to be revealed uh, reverently and with great fear uh, and trembling. You know, this is, this is about the, 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 this is, these are truths about God that he has, that he has communicated to us. And, you know, they bring us up short just as much as they, as, as, as they bring up the world. You know, I mean, I stand under the, under the scriptures, which is under the, the, the just judgment of God, um, being a, a redeemed and forgiven sinner by nothing other than the blood of his son. And so, you know, that's where, when we talk about these things, I know I sound defensive, but it's because I, 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 I hear these these rejoinders, at least I'll read them, that somehow this is a triumphalistic or judgmental or sort of self-righteous positions to hold and all these things, which and in my experience, my, my lived and preached and pastoral experience is nothing further from the truth, because I'm speaking as someone who has 
who has a, a litany of sin and regrets and, and offenses that, that rightly could crush me under the weight of guilt, fear, and shame. And yet I have been, uh, they have been re- forgiven, you know, like, like the pilgrim at the cross, like my burden has been, has been let go. And, and it's in that hope for even the most egregious of sinner who is the, living the most contrary to God's word that sends me into the world. I know sends us into the world uh, as preachers, you know, who are, who are accused of bringing the pain, but in, but in actuality, we are coming to diagnose that pain in service of the bringing the, the healing balm of Gilead to the lost and the hurting. And so, you know, I don't think it's going to get any better for us. I think it's going to get more, um, you know, didn't get better for the apostle Paul, you know, he kept getting beaten up, thrown out of the cities, causing riots and ultimately beheaded. So um, there we go. There's that. But, um, you know, I, I hope, uh, well, I have enough life insurance. So if that's the case, then, you know, we'll be, <laughs> we'll be okay. But I don't, I don't think that's going to happen. But at the same time, it will be all in service of watching the Lord actually feed his sheep by bringing the new life um, to them out of the the living death that is a life of unforgiveness um, under the specter of guilt, fear, and shame. No better note to end on than beheadings and guilt, fear, and shame. (laughs) (laughs) Always your your uplifting correspondent, the Reverend Dr. J.D. (laughs) Coe. Well... Well, we are basically out of the time we've allotted for ourselves this week. We do appreciate you listening to the Stand Firm podcast this week. You can keep the conversation going with us by being in touch. You can rate and review the podcast on iTunes. Send us an email at mailbag at standfirminfaith.com or join the Anglicans for the Gospel Facebook group. Thank you to J.D. Koch and Matt Kennedy. I'm Nick Lannon and Lord willing, assuming we haven't been beheaded, we'll be back next week. (laughs) Until then, by the grace of God and Jesus Christ, we'll be standing firm. (laughs) 